You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family loved and served by God, compelled to love and serve each other and Austin with God. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Good morning, everybody. It's great to see uh, your faces or uh, names up here on, on Zoom this morning. Um, miss y'all. But I'm um, looking forward to our time together this morning as we begin a new sermon series. But before I get into that, let me introduce myself in case there's some on here that I haven't had a chance to meet yet. My name is Jake Box. I'm the uh, lead pastor here at Midtown Church, and we are so glad that you are joining us uh, this morning. Uh, now, you probably, if you're visiting, you don't know this, but the rest of our church does that this year, uh, as a church family, we had a goal that we would all form two healthy spiritual habits. And so throughout the year, we've been encouraging people to uh, spend time with God, develop these habits. And a lot of our emphasis has been to develop habits uh, that are really rooted in God's word, where we are like doing daily devotions or Bible study or scripture memory. And all of that kind of begs a question uh, that's this, why would we put such an emphasis on memorizing and reading and knowing and applying God's word, the Bible? Now, if you grew up in the church, then you might be quick to say it's because the Bible is what I just called it. It's God's word. And so what God says, the Bible says. But if you didn't grow up in the church, or for that matter, uh, perhaps if you just grew up, you might have a hard time believing that. For there's a good chance that somewhere along the way, somebody pointed out to you, or maybe you read for yourself, some of the more difficult things that the Bible says. And you found yourself having a hard time taking what the Bible says and reconciling it with the world that you live in. And as a result, you might have begun to wonder, you know, is the B-I-B-L-E really the book for me? (laughs) So today, we're going to start a four-week sermon series addressing the important questions regarding the Bible. And I'm going to begin by telling you the story of how we got it. Now, it's like kind of a weird question, but it's a great question. How did we get the Bible? I think that's an important question because, you know, I think many of us know some Bible stories, but very few of us know the story of how we got the Bible. But it's a story worth knowing because if you don't know the story of the Bible, it's easy to discount or dismiss the stories within the Bible. For you see, the way you got your Bible isn't the way the world got the Bible. By the time you got your Bible, it had been chaptered and versed, right? It had been footnoted. It was in English. There were maps. There were titles and headers. When you got your Bible, it was all compiled. But that's not how the world got the Bible. You see, How we got the Bible is explained to us by a first century doctor named Luke. For Luke had a friend named Theophilus who had heard about Jesus and wanted to know more. And so Luke, being a good friend, uh, did a lot of careful investigation. And then he wrote to Theophilus about Jesus. And amazingly, his letter survived history, and it's contained in the Bible. We know it as the Gospel of Luke. But listen, when Luke wrote to his friend, he wasn't like writing the Bible, at least not in the way that we use that phrase. 
See, Luke had no idea that the Bible would actually uh, exist. Luke was simply creating an orderly account of the events of Jesus' life based on the eyewitnesses that he interviewed. In fact, here's how he began his letter. He says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account or a, a document of the things that have been fulfilled, or you could say the things that have happened among us, which implies, and don't miss this, that implies that something had happened among them that was worth documenting. In fact, it was worth documenting not just in Luke's eyes, but in many people's eyes, Luke says. So that's, you keep that in mind. But then he continues, he says, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Okay, now the question that that should cause us to ask is this. What happened that would cause so many people to document it? I mean, sure, in, in our day, it's really not unusual for multiple people to cover the same story. But back in the first century, that was in, incredibly unusual because it was really expensive to uh, document anything, to write anything, and most of the people were illiterate in the first place. And so why would Luke and why would you know, many, many others feel compelled to document something that happened in the first century? Well, friends, the answer is it's because something truly extraordinary happened. And thanks to Luke and others, we know what it was. See, here's what happened. Jesus had been crucified. Now, real quick aside here, um, for those who might have questions about that, there is plenty of extra biblical literature that confirms that Jesus was a historical person and that he was crucified under the Roman Empire. And so uh, Jesus had been crucified and Jesus' closest followers assumed what we would all assume. They assumed that when Jesus died, he would stay dead, right? In fact, in his letter to Theophilus, Luke tells him that after carefully investigating this, he said that Jesus, when he was crucified, he, it wasn't even his closest followers that got permission to remove Jesus' dead body from the cross and bury it. But instead, Luke says it was a guy named Joseph of Arimathea who was a, a, a religious, who was a, a leader of the Supreme Court for the Jews. He was a well-known guy. Uh, he was the one who got permission from Pilate to remove Jesus's body. In fact, to quote Luke, he says, "Going to Pilate, he, meaning uh, Joseph of Arimathea, asked for Jesus's body, and then he took it down. He wrapped it in linen cloth and he placed it in a tomb cut in the rock." one in which no one had yet been laid. And then Luke goes on to say, the women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph of Arimathea and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. And then Luke records that the women went home and they prepared spices and perfumes. Now, why would they do that? It was because they were going to come back after the Sabbath and re-embalm Jesus' body. And the reason they would re-embalm Jesus' body is because Jesus was dead and everybody expected Jesus to stay dead. And why did Joseph of Arimathea and not Jesus' closest friends, the disciples, remove Jesus' body from the cross? 
Well, it was because Jesus' closest followers had all gone into hiding in fear of the Jewish religious leaders. They were nowhere to be found because they feared that what had happened to Jesus was going to happen to them as well. Now, okay, here's why I tell you this. This is what you need to hear. If that's where the story of Jesus had ended, there would be no Bible. For at that moment, there were no Christians and there wasn't a church. In fact, there wasn't even any hope. There were just some brokenhearted women and disillusioned disciples who were scared for their own lives. And so if the story had ended there, there would be no account by Luke investigating the details of the life of Jesus. No one would have ever written about him. No story would have ever been recorded. No Bible would have ever come to be. But it did come to be. And so we should ask, why? Well, it's because something happened. Something so significant that it would cause many people to document it. For Luke and others documented the life of Jesus because Jesus was seen alive again after he had died. And I know that sounds really crazy, but this is Luke. Luke is the one who says, I carefully investigated everything. Here's what he writes. He says, uh, while they, and they in this uh, is referring to the scared disciples who were in hiding. He says, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And they were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do, you, why do doubts rise, rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it in their presence. And then he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me and the law of Moses the prophets and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Now, when it refers to the scriptures here, it's not the Bible. This is reference to the Jewish scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures. Um, and so he opens their mind. He, he, he takes them to this Jewish scriptures and he told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And then he adds, and you are witnesses of these things. And after that, friends, these scared uh, disciples, after they had witnessed Jesus alive after he had died, they came out of hiding and they went into the streets of Jerusalem and they faced down the very people who had Jesus killed. They boldly announced Jesus's resurrection to the people who were responsible for taking Jesus to Pilate to be crucified. And that is where the story of how we got the Bible begins. For Jesus' resurrection is the event that happened that was so significant, it caused many people in the first century to investigate it 
and to document it. You see, the story of how we got the Bible began on the very first Easter Sunday. However, at that point, there was still no Bible, right? There were just many first century people living in a region of Jerusalem who, like Luke, were moved to draw up an account of the things that had been fulfilled among them. Now, who were some of those people? Well, we know one of them was a guy named Matthew. And Matthew was an eyewitness to Jesus' life and death and resurrection because he was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. And we know he was moved to document what happened because we have his document. It's known as the Gospel of Matthew. But before it was ever called that, before it was ever part of the, the Bible, it was just a document written to first century Jews with this message. Jesus is the one that we've been waiting for. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one that the law and the prophets have been pointing us to. And we know another guy who was moved to draw up an account of what happened during that time. His name was Peter. And Peter, too, was one of Jesus' disciples. And Peter, who was a fisherman by trade, was most likely illiterate. So he dictated his account to a young Greek man named John Mark. And John Mark is no mystery to history either. For John Mark traveled with the Apostle Paul. John Mark was a friend of Luke's. And John Mark recorded Peter's eyewitness account of Jesus. And we still have it. We know it as the Gospel of Mark. And we know that later, after Luke wrote his account, another one of Jesus' disciples, a guy named John, would sit down and he would record his own eyewitness account of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. At the end of his document that we now call the Gospel of John, he tells us why he bothered to write it, because he knew that other people had written as well. He, he was aware of their documents, so, but he says near the end of his document, his account of Jesus' life, after sharing a lot of things that Jesus had done, he penned these words. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. And now, real quick, when John says this book, he wasn't referring to the Bible. Again, the Bible didn't exist yet. The book that he references in this document is the document that he was writing. So he's saying, there are many other things that Jesus did that didn't show up in my account of Jesus's life. But, he adds, these are written that you... Now think about this. Who's you? See, you here is you. And you here is, is me. You, you is, is anyone who would read John's account of Jesus' life. He says, these were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Life meaning eternal life in his name. Now, why would you, why would I believe that? Well, John doesn't say you should believe that because the Bible says so. Again, there wasn't a Bible yet. Instead, what he says is, I wrote my eyewitness account because I want you to know what I witnessed. 
Jesus died on a Friday. And then the following Sunday, I watched him eat dinner. He had the fish. And so he says, I wrote this because I want you to know that. So that you can believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, for by believing you may have life in his name. Okay. Now, John and Peter and Mark, Matthew and Luke, they didn't just write about this. They, along with many others, spent the rest of their lives telling people about what they had seen. And for the resurrection of Jesus didn't just set the Bible into motion, it also set the church or the Jesus movement into motion. And as the good news about Jesus spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the other parts of the world, more and more people believed and, the church, and churches were birthed. And Luke records all of that for us in his second letter to his friend Theophilus. That letter, which we still have and is known as the book of Acts, begins this way. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, meaning his crucifixion, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. And in that letter, Luke goes on to detail the birth of and the spread of the church. And he records how the apostles, the apostles being the eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus, how they took the good news of Jesus all over the Mediterranean rim, moving from one city to the next. And oftentimes they would stop along the way, often stopping as a result of being imprisoned for what they were saying about Jesus. And they would write back to the churches that they had started to encourage them and further instruct them in the faith. And the churches would hold on to those letters and they would copy them and they would send them out to other cities because they were precious for they were written by people who had seen the resurrected Jesus. And we have many of them in our Bibles today. But at that time, near the end of the first century, there still was no Bible. But there were thousands upon thousands of Christians, Jewish Christians, and Greek Christians, and Roman Christians, and Ethiopian Christians, and Christians in other parts of the world. And at the end of the first century, there were dozens and then eventually hundreds and hundreds of copies of these documents that were being passed around that told of the life and the works of Jesus. And some people had a gospel. They had Luke or they had John. Some people had two. And some people had a fragment of one gospel and a letter from Paul or a letter from Peter. And all of them are viewed as completely precious and valuable. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine if you were a first century Jesus follower or second century Jesus follower? Can you imagine how valuable those documents would be to you? That perhaps you had only heard of the stories of Jesus and then somebody comes to your town and says, hey, let me show you something. 
and he uncovers a full copy of John's account of his life with Jesus. Uh, can you imagine what that would be like, how valuable that would be to you? See, about 300 years before one, a Bible was ever compiled, there were these precious, extraordinary documents that gave first century, second century, third century Christians stories of and details of and quotes from their Savior, Jesus. And from the very beginning, these documents were considered valuable and reliable and true. And it should become no surprise that very quickly these documents, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, were considered sacred. Now, during this same time, non-Jewish people who had embraced the message of Jesus became enamored with the sacred text of the Jewish people. The sacred text that Jesus said in Luke 24 all pointed to him. And so the early church got really interested in them because they understood that they told the backstory of Jesus. And this led first century and second century church to eventually embrace the Jewish scriptures as Christian scriptures. And by the beginning of the second century, the law and the prophets, as they were known, were being used in Christian worship. And eventually, they gave them a new name. They called them the Old Covenant, or as it has come down to us because of the Latin term, the Old Testament. Now, during all of that time, all while all of that was happening, the Roman Empire was very suspicious of Christians. Not because of what Christians believed, per se, but because of what Christians didn't believe. For Christians didn't believe in the gods. See, Rome didn't really care who you worshipped as long as that you would give a grain offering every once in a while to their gods and that you would, see, you would uh, say that Caesar was Lord. But the Christians wouldn't do that, for they declared that Jesus was Lord. And that offended Rome. And so from time to time, when things would get bad in, Ro in the Roman Empire, the emperors would blame the Christians. And this culminated in the year 303, when Emperor Diocletian issued an edict that resulted in the worst state-sponsored persecution of Christians that had happened up until that time. And his edict declared that every single house of Christian worship must be destroyed and that assembly by Christians was illegal. And it declared that all Christian literature was to be turned in and burned. And if you were caught with Christian literature, you could lose your life after you watched your wife and your daughter and your son lose their lives. And yet, hundreds and hundreds of Christians risked and lost their lives protecting, not the Bible, the Bible still didn't exist yet, they were protecting the documents of Matthew and Mark and what Luke wrote and what John wrote and the other letters written by them and by Paul and by G James, the half-brother of Jesus. And the reason why many Christians would rather die than turn in those documents is because they were confident 
that those precious texts told the truth about something that had happened in the region of Jerusalem in the first century. And so many died in order to preserve these sacred documents, these documents that were birthed as a result of Jesus' resurrection and bore witness of that event. But even during that persecution, Christianity continued to spread. And then political change brought about reform and an easing of hostilities. And by the year of 324, Constantine the Great had become the undisputed emperor of both sides of the empire, and he canceled those edicts, and he returned property to the church and allowed Christians to worship freely. And Christianity became the preferred religion of the empire. And then, for the first time ever, Christian scholars were able to gather together without fear of persecution and without fear of having their precious documents taken away. And for the first time, they were able to bring together this extraordinary collection of valuable, or what we would call New Testament documents, and bind them together with the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament. And in doing so, the very first Tabiblia, the very first Bible was compiled. So friends, that's how we got the Bible. Now, that might raise some more questions for you. <laughs> like, well, how do we know that the documents that they collected were the right ones? And how do we know if what we hold in our hands really is trustworthy copies of the first century accounts of Jesus in the church? And so uh, those are good questions. We're going to pick up next week addressing those questions. But here's what I want you to remember from today. The Bible is as great as it is, did not create Christianity. See, Christianity is the result of a historical event, the resurrection of Jesus. For that event created a movement, the church, that produced the documents, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the epistles of Paul and Peter and others, that were collected through the years and protected through the years, even at the cost of people's lives, for they were considered valuable and precious and sacred because eyewitnesses of Jesus wrote them and because they communicated who Jesus was and what he had done for the entire world. See, if there had been no resurrection, there would be no Bible. For the story of Jesus would not have been worth telling. But his story is worth telling because it's a true story for every generation. It's a story for me and it's a story for you because Jesus really did live and die and rise again so that through faith in him, you and I, and have eternal life. To quote from John again, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Friends, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, it, it, it takes faith to believe some of this. 
God, I pray that you would give us faith. God, I pray that you would also help us see that in your kindness and mercy towards us, the Christian faith is not disconnected from history. It's not simply a philosophy. But there is reason to understand and ways to understand how this all happened. That Jesus really did die and rise again, and that it's his resurrection that set into motion the church and gave birth to the Bible. And God, may we understand that these, this, these, these letters that we, that we can read are eyewitness accounts of Christ. And we would more fully and confidently believe that it's true. And Lord, that you would speak to us through your word, that we may have life in his name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this ministry has blessed you. If you would like to support this ministry, you can donate at midtownaustin.org.